Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, everybody. Good to see all of you. Uh, hi. Wow, I love the faces. I love the smiles. A lot of chizik, a lot of strength you give us. Um, good to see you. I want to start off by thanking you for your blessings and your prayers and for all of your messages from the last fellowship. I had no idea what type of Pandora's box I was opening with that teaching that I shared about, uh, you know, the descendants of Joseph and how whether some of the people alive today, even in this fellowship, who have this sort of deep and abiding love for the Jewish people, which they themselves can't explain about whether that they're perhaps descendants of Joseph. I thought I was just sharing an idea. I didn't understand how deep and meaningful this idea was for so many of you. I think a lot of the Jewish members in our fellowship, it may have really gone over over our heads. I mean, it's it was it's a very powerful thing. And, you know, usually, as you know, I don't get into speculation about genealogical roots for a number of different reasons. But I thought it was right when I encountered such a special teaching from Rav Ginsburg. And, you know, there's some things that uh, that I want to share with you about this whole issue, and I hope we'll get back to them soon. I, I, I trust that we'll have enough time in the fellowship to bring it back there. But I wanted to start this fellowship with talking about a trip that Jeremy and I took down south uh, this past week. We went to see the villages, the cities, the kibbutzim, the intersections that were ravaged in the most horrific ways imaginable. Um, you know, we, we went down with like trepidation uh, and uh, what we were going to encounter. You know, I, I, it was a very new experience. I know for me, I think also for you, Jeremy. And to tell you the truth, I was conflicted much more so than Jeremy about whether I should go at all. I wasn't sure why I was reluctant to go. I also wasn't completely sure why in the end I decided to go. Um, there are times when my thinking around everything that's happening hasn't been very clear. And this is one of those times. And it left me with little choice but uh, to sort of bypass the entire intellectual decision-making process and just listen to my heart. For as we know, we've talked about it here before, when, when God came to King Solomon in his dream, his run, one request was not merely for wisdom, as is often assumed based on certain translations, but what did he ask for, right? His prayerful request was that he should be blessed with the lev shomei, a listening heart. And this is not always such an easy prop proposition. You know, it's sometimes difficult to strip away our ego and our self-interest and really listen to what our heart is telling us. But when trying to decide whether I should join this mission down south, um, I, I decided it was. It was the right thing for me to go, and, and I did. I went. And I, I want to share with you about that. We, the group was called Bearing Witness, right? Bearing Witness. And it was led by our dear friend Moshe Rothschild, Rabbi Moshe Rothschild. And it was powerful, um, to say the least. It's still sinking in. I'm still digesting, and I'll probably be digesting it for the rest of my life. And so I want to share my experience with you, but first I want to yield the microphone, which Jeremy is not happy with. He thinks it looks really silly and ghetto that we're using like this headset, and I'm sorry, and I'm going to make it a point to get something more professional. But I want to yield it to Jeremy, who will share his heart about the trip down south. Okay, thank you. Hi, friends. So good to see you guys. Um, is this microphone working? This works? This is all good? Excellent. Okay. So there's a lot going on in everyone's lives. There's happy times, there's sad times, there's ups, there's downs. It's become clear to me that um, God doesn't like boring things. Nothing is boring in Israel. There is just constant drama. I just became a great uncle. That's a new thing. My older brother just had like the first grandchild of the family. And so it's like happy times, sad times. Um, I visited a mourner's house four times in the last five days. I've never done that before, but I've been so compelled to go back to this one family over and over again. And um, I've been so touched by the story of their son who fell in Gaza that I'm going to dedicate the next fellowship really to um, to Ephraim Yachman, to the son that uh, fell in Gaza. And it's just, you know, when there's so much chaos, so I, I, I think the key to life is to turn to the Torah to find that the word is speaking directly to us as a people, directly to us as individuals. It's a living word. 
And when you read the end of the book of Genesis, it's like this whole war just kind of gobbled up Genesis. And it's like, it's like, what? It's already over. And one of the greatest literary questions of the Torah is, did Jacob know? Jacob dies. Did anyone ever tell him what really happened? Did the brothers or Joseph ever tell Jacob that actually it was the brothers that sold him down to Egypt? And I've asked already now about 15 relatively scholarly Jews, and it's split down the middle. Half say yes, half say no, because really from the text of the Torah, you can't tell. And um, I just want to share a thought that came to me this year. And however you read that story, it really changes the entire dynamic. If Jacob knew it's one thing, and if Jacob didn't know, it's another thing. And my instincts after reading it this year and the blessings that Jacob gave all of the children, never mentioning the sale of Joseph, is that Jacob didn't know, that Joseph never told him. And that's really a remarkable thing. Because when you look at the first verse that introduces Joseph into the world in Genesis uh, chapter 37, verse 2, here's what it says. These are the generations of Jacob. When Joseph was 17 years old, being a shepherd, he was with his brothers and with his flocks, and he was a lad, and was with the sons of Bilhah, and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought evil tales about them to their father. That's how Joseph starts off the story, speaking diba, speaking poorly, kind of being the tattletale to his father. And then the saga begins. Joseph is sold down to slavery. The brothers are devastated. Judah leaves the family, comes back around, only at the end for Judah to really rectify himself, to allow himself to be forgiven and for him to forgive himself. The brothers become united. And you also see that in that whole process, Joseph changes too, if you read the story that way. He never told Jacob, where he starts off as the tattletale. Now he really has the ultimate revenge to tell Jacob what really happened. And he guarded that closely, never to betray his brothers and not to sadden his father. And so you see, after this whole process, everyone went through a transformation. Everyone became better. Everyone became who they were destined to be. And that's what it feels like right now in Israel for me. It feels like Israel is on the operating table and there's no anesthesia, and we're just being cut open and having heart surgery. And it's so painful right now, just like the stories of Joseph, just parsha after parsha of pain and struggle and distress and anxiety. And then finally, our hearts are being fixed. Israel is being fixed on so many different fronts. And Ari and I went down to the South uh, this last week. And I went down to the South primarily with the purpose of sharing my experience with our fellowship. So I did my very best to document the journey that I would be able to share it with you because I know so many of you would love to be there, would love to chip in, give a hand, feel the pain of the Jewish people with us. And so I made this video as best as I could to sort of bring you alongside us in the journey but as we see just the horrors of what Israel has gone through, what we're going through, I mean, I would say every three or four minutes when we were down south, a massive explosion went off. And we're like, oh, you know, we get nervous. It's so loud because Gaza is just, you know, a few kilometers away from these kibbutzim and these little communities that we went to visit. Um, but with all of the pain and with all of the, um, it was really a life-changing trip for me. And I feel like all of us are going through heart surgery. God is opening our hearts right now. And hopefully, just like the book of Genesis, we finished that painful process where we were all a little bit more fixed. I believe that Israel is right now uh, being corrected and being fixed, and we're being staked to grow more upright and to pull out and grow us into who we were created to be. And so here is... Um, 
my journey down Shalom, south. friends. This is Jeremy Gimpel from the Arugot Farm. Yesterday, my friend Moshe Rothschild organized a tour down south to visit the kibbutzim, to visit the site of the music festival, to see the outcomes of October 7th, and to meet the people that lived through it, and how Israel is responding now. I think it is one of the most important things for every Jew living in the land of Israel today. Everyone must go down and see reality with their own eyes. And until then, come with me on one of the most meaningful journeys of my life. We first stopped at Shokeda, which was one of the religious communities that somehow miraculously, although they were surrounded by terrorists with pickup trucks and machine guns, just as they somehow guarded Shabbat, Shabbat somehow guarded them, and the terrorists were never able to enter into the community itself. Um, Ari and I have gone down to the south for the first time since the beginning of the war just to visit the community to see what's going on. We're in Shokeda now, which is one of the real headquarters of activism and volunteering. And as you can see behind me, these soldiers that are right here are literally just out of Gaza. They're here on a little break and in these tents here are hundreds of volunteers all over Israel, some from Europe, Germany. They've come here just to make sandwiches, to clean, to do whatever they can to support the people of the South and the soldiers in Gaza. It's, um, I was scared to come down here today. I didn't know and I don't know what I'm going to see, but what I see now is really beautiful. So you know, in hard times we saw during COVID, societies, they just fell apart. People were burning down cities, wearing masks, breaking into Best Buy, stealing thieves, just total disintegration. And what you can see, the beauty of the Jewish people is in our hard times, what happens? The Jewish people, they don't take, they give, they come, they volunteer, they support. And so what an honor to be a part of such a beautiful nation. We ask people to dominate money and stuff and food. And now we are about 2,400 uh, a day, 70% are going to the field to the, the, to the warriors. And 500 here, around here, they are coming, you can see. Uh, we are doing laundry. We have barbers, we have uh, massagistas, and cuisine, and vasaparim, and everything. That's what I'm doing here. The next stop after Shokeda was to go to Teshuva, which is a graveyard of cars. It's the largest forensic operation in the history of Israel, where still cars are coming in and people are trying to find the remnants of the DNA of the victims of October 7th. But until you see it with your own eyes, you can't believe how many cars and how many Jews were just slaughtered on the roads trying to escape the savages of October 7th. Hey friends, so I'm right now outside of Tkuma, and what's behind me here is the graveyard of all of the cars that were either burned to a crisp here during October 7th, and all the cars behind me that were just shot up and the people were killed in. And the reason why we're here is because there are still forensics going on here, and cars still coming in. This car that's right behind me is a red car, and you can see on the side here are bullet holes. And they're now bringing that car in. And, um, you know, the rabbinic psak was that for the bodies that were either burned to a crisp and not found, but remnants of pieces of body or blood, they're actually going to bury the cars. And that's never happened before in human history. But when you think about visiting the concentration camps in Auschwitz, and you see rooms filled with just baby shoes, that's the closest thing that I can really express what we're seeing behind us here. Just hundreds and hundreds of burned cars in all of this parking lot of Jews that were just hunted down and taken from this world. I was just on my way back now to get on the bus and as I'm leaving, I see these white bags here that are right behind me. I'll go take a picture of them for you. And I asked the people, what are those white bags? And he says, those are white bags that are filled with ashes with potential human remains and they're still going through them in order to try to find out people that are missing, people that haven't been found, um, the remains of the Jewish people that were murdered right here behind us.
So we just now arrived at Re'im, which is the site of the Music and Peace Festival that was here on October 7th. And you can see all around are little kind of memorials with Israeli flags over there and in the trees there and all the different places where Jews were just massacred. Just unbelievable to see it with our own eyes. Now this place behind me here is a memorial for all the people that were killed here in the music festival. It's kind of like on these stakes it has the pictures of the faces of each one. And um, just really unbelievable. Bombs are going off here all the time. It's just, it's a war zone. Now I'm just taking time now to walk through the music festival here in this area where this pogrom happened and so many hundreds of Jews were just slaughtered. And I'm driving down the south and all of these communities, the map that you see, all of these communities are evacuated. This entire region of Israel, they're all refugees. There's no country in the world that would put up with that. It's as if the generation of slaves that left Egypt didn't die in the desert and they came into Israel and now they're running the country and their mentality is so off and their leadership is so poor that they would allow us to be living under this reign of terror and bombs and evacuees. I mean, it's time for law and order and peace and prosperity. And the only way to do that long term is to make sure that there is never another Arab government in the land of Israel. Ever. So we just arrived now in Kibbutz Be'eri and in some ways this is sort of like the climax of the trip. And as we're walking around just looking at some of the burnt buildings, you smells like death in the air. And one of the women that's here with me just, just vomited just because the smell is so horrible. It's unbelievable to be here. So here we're just walking through the kibbutz here and as you can see behind me the houses are just devastated bullets holes in all of them. This was one of the first houses that they broke into after breaking through the fence. I mean it's just house after house is totally destroyed. One of the members of the kibbutz here told us that they're not planning on coming back here for at least a year and a half. So we're just walking around Be'eri now, and you just can't imagine what has happened to this kibbutz. Everywhere you look, there's just absolute devastation inside the homes, outside the homes. Our guide here from the kibbutz is just saying just horror stories. Just absolute monsters came in and just mercilessly took children, women, kidnapped them, killed them, smoked them out of their homes. Love you, Father and Carmela Wunden. Please get help as fast as possible. Please come, help us. Carmel in his hand, in his hand, in his hand. Uh, Father all over the belly, and holes. Father is uh, lying on Carmel, he stopped the bleeding. Call anyone you can. Please, please, please. Send him 200 times if you need to. I don't know if he will make it. There's no help. No, no, no. You can hear that there are trying to open the window in the background. They are dying here, they threw three grenades. They are shooting, you hear the shooting in the background. We love you, we are dying here. You know, there is no separation between Hamas and the people of Gaza. They are all the same. It doesn't matter. Some had guns and some didn't have guns. The only, the only difference is 
the gear that they packed. There were a lot of uh, civilians, so-called civilians, who came and raped and kidnapped and murdered. And they, did, they did the most horrible things. And I've, I've never seen anyone in Gaza. Uh, everybody were, they were celebrating uh, what went on, went on on October 7th. So. Uh, yes, so I think they, they understand that we have to bring our security back, we have to fight back and to fight for our security, for uh, our safety, for our ability to, to have families here, to raise children, and to live in this country. Our, this war is not about just the people who live here, it's about our ability to live in this country. And it's also important to understand to know how united the, the Jewish people are these days. And among the people, even those from around the world, the Jewish people from around the world that can't be here today, I know that they are here and they're out. And we are feeling it from here, that everybody supports us. It really it's a heartwarming and this is our uh, biggest comfort, uh, the love that we receive from everybody, you know, from day one until now. So that was my day, and let me tell you, I'm busy. Everyone's busy. Everyone has a million things that they need to do. But there is nothing more important right now that every single Jew in the land of Israel go down to the south, see what's happening, see reality with your own eyes, meet the people there. We always said never again about things that happened in Poland and in Auschwitz. Far more important that we learn the lesson of never again here in the land of Israel. And until you see it, you really can't believe it. So please find the time, go down south, and go and see Israel. Okay. I'm really grateful that Jeremy put that together. I don't think I was at the uh, sort of the mental, emotional place, the awareness to put up the camera and talk to it and report and do it. I know that uh, what sort of allowed him to do that was you. It was that I know for a fact that it was the fact that he was sharing it with you and you were there with him and it wasn't randomly Facebook live streaming it, but he's talking to the fellowship, to our family, to all of you, is what gave him the strength and the awareness to do it. I also think knowing Jeremy, it's a little bit his his coping mechanism of dealing with things. Uh, when it comes to uh, things of this nature, Jeremy and I try to stay away from each other because we have very conflicting ways of handling the emotional thing that was going on and so he really did did his piece well and i'm grateful for that and um because there's a lot of uh, videos images stuff I, I sort of as he's talking i want to show you i wanted to but i don't know if this works this is you know this is a, a one of the bombs they put on the wall to try to burst into the uh the shelter um you know that guy that was giving us the tour i'll never forget it because i've given a lot of tours. I've been on the receiving end of tours before. Our tour guide was, uh, I don't know the English word. The Hebrew word is Helen. He was in Helen. How would you define Helen? Still in shock, really in shock uh, about what he had just endured. He lost his brother. He told us the story about his, how his brother fought for seven hours against Hamas and then he ran out of ammunition and then he was just executed. And, you know, he lost so much of his family, his friends, his community. And he said that his only way of dealing with it up until then is um, giving tours like this to groups that come through. And he said he's actually sleeping there in Be'eri. He's sleeping in his house in Be'eri, even though it's a closed military zone. You know, they've evacuated the whole place. But he's like, well, come evacuate me. This is where I, this is where I want to be right now. It was a powerful experience. I'll never forget the look in his eye, the look in his eyes and, and, and his, his energy just being with him. Such a brave, sweet, loving guy. You know, and it's like, I know intellectually that it's like the bastion of secularism and leftism. And, but when, I'm, when you're there, you don't even think about that for a second. You just, I just saw a fellow Jew with a shattered, broken heart that is just trying to breathe. That's what I saw in him. And, uh, and, you know, I think uh, I'm glad that I went on the trip. I think that the reason I was reluctant to go 
uh, was because uh, part of me felt like maybe it's too early to make a monument out of this thing. You know what I'm saying? Maybe it's too early for tour buses that were not there yet. There's a lot of baggage around the whole issue. You know, I guess I felt it isn't time to make a March of the Living out of it. Have you heard of March of the Living? Do you know what March of the Living is? I don't know if non-Jews have heard of that before. I'm sure the Jewish members of our fellowship have either heard, definitely heard about it or been on it. But um, I don't know if the nations know about that. But the March of the Living uh, has become a huge thing in the Jewish world for many years now. Jews of all ages, children, adults, seniors, survivors, Jews from every background, they go on these trips to Auschwitz to see firsthand what the six million uh, endured. And, you know, I won't go into the reasons that I felt uncomfortable about that trip. And let me be clear, I'm not saying I'm against it. I even went on one myself, but there are things about it that just make me uncomfortable. And it's not the huge amounts of money that these trips generate for the tourism industry in Germany and in Austria, which directly benefit the children and grandchildren of those who, per who perpetrated the Holocaust. It's deeper than that. I think the issue I've had is the why of, of the trip. The why, you know, many of the groups that go on these March of the Living trips aim to uh, to make the takeaway lesson about how bad intolerance is. I don't know if you've heard of the ADL. There's like an ADL type of thinking that is just it, 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 they make something generic out of the whole trip that it's about stripping it of what makes it so unique and special to the nation of Israel. Uh, to me, the justification for the trip lies in the reason you're going on and what lessons you take away from it. The trip in and of itself is neutral. It could be a good thing or a negative thing, depending on really what you get out of it. And so many of the trips that go do take away important lessons. You know, I personally know people living in Israel who told me that after seeing firsthand what happens when the Jewish people don't have their own state, don't have their own land, that they decided to make Aliyah and make their homes and their lives in Israel, which is a great outcome. And that would indeed justify the whole thing in my mind. But many come away with very different conclusions, which make the trip questionable about whether it's really worth it. You know, if you're going to just make it about general intolerance and intolerance and then carry it over to LGBT, LGBTQI, whatever, and make it about that and don't roll your eyes and say no one would do that. People do that. They take it into the craziest directions. And so... I think the root of my discomfort and deliberation uh, about pers personally going down there it was around that. It was around this question of why, why I should go, why I was going, why anyone should go. Because although both trips, right, the one to Auschwitz and the one to Be'eri are encounters with different types of holocausts, you know, one happened when there was no Jewish state to run to and the other happened in the Jewish state that was established in many people's minds to ensure that a Holocaust like that would ever happen again, right? So part of me felt like the trip, I know I'm talking a lot about this and going through my whole journey, but I'm still figuring it out right now. Um, part of me felt like it only makes sense to go down there once the war is over and Hamas is wiped off the map. That going now at this point when soldiers are still dying in Gaza was just premature, that we haven't arrived at the stage of healing yet to really properly experience a trip down there. Um, I'm just giving you a glimpse into my confusion. I just didn't know, but ultimately I followed my heart and I went. And I figured if it wasn't the right thing to do, uh, I could always blame Jeremy. You know, he was pressuring me to do it, but, uh, but I'm glad that I did go. And I'm glad that he really uh, spoke to my heart and really, I think he convinced me to go because if anything, just on an emotional level, because when I walked away, I had a feeling of, um, of, of, of a fire burning stronger within me than I felt before the trip. Or maybe not stronger than me, a different fire was coming from a different place. Uh, a different thing had been aroused in my soul. And I'm glad I went because when we got there and we were being taken around by uh, Yonatan, that, that guy who you saw speaking at the end, one of the survivors of the massacre, who took us into the devastated, burned out homes that the murders took place. And he told us that the people of Be'eri have already said that they are not going to leave the homes up as monuments like Auschwitz. No, they're, they have resiliently and courageously declared that they're going to knock it all down. He didn't even want to take anything from his home, knock it all down, and they're going to rebuild. So I realized when I was down there that now is the time to see it. Now is the time. Uh, not to see what happened 
what happened to us in the past tense, but to see what's happening to us right now. That's, I think, what was making it so strange that we're not seeing, you know, we're not on the other end of this thing at all. You know, one of the most memorable moments of the trip was when we were standing outside the home of one of the families who bravely resisted Hamas within their safe room because they didn't even have locks on their safe room doors because that they went into, it was about missiles. They never, in all of the years since the establishment of Barry, I think in 1946, had Arabs that penetrated in to, into the, so it wasn't about that. And so it just became about who is stronger, the people inside that are holding the door closed or Hamas on the outside that is keeping the door open. And we were hearing the story of, uh, of the father and the son holding the door closed with all of their might until the terrorists shot through the door. The mother was inside. The girl was inside. You heard that the, the girl's messages. We heard it from his phone. You know, he was playing it off of his phone, this, this sweet little girl's messages. Anyways, the father and the son were holding the door closed, and then the terrorists just shot through the door, ripping both the arms off of the 16-year-old boy, um, shooting the mother in the stomach. Uh, eventually, because it was seven hours in there, they both just died of, of blood loss. While the father and the daughter miraculously survived, the father lost his leg, um, and the daughter had serious injuries. Uh, we listened to the recordings that you you got to hear there, a little bit of the 14-year-old daughter. She was trying to keep her mother awake. She said, mother, don't fall asleep, don't fall asleep. You know, I, I'll never forget the feeling of the entry. I was I saw the door, and I had my hand on one side of the door where the bullets went in, and the other hand where the bullets, you know, exited. Uh, the hundreds of Kalachnikov bullets through the door. And, and in the middle of, of the story that this, uh, that this survivor was telling, incredible guy, in the middle of the story, the siren goes off. And we couldn't tell, was it from within Barry or the community next to it? It turned out being from the adjacent settlement. But it took us some time for us to realize that. And at that moment, I realized that if it wasn't Barry, if the missiles were launched just 0.01 degrees closer to Barry, then we would most likely be taking shelter in that very bomb shelter, which just weeks ago was filled with the innocent Jewish blood and death of that of the son and the mother in that same shelter, and we would have to be taking refuge in that very same shelter. You know, we weren't we weren't witnessing something that happened in the past. We were experiencing something that's happening right now. The bombs were constantly going off. I realized that um, I realized that now is the time to see firsthand why we are fighting this war. Um, I, I knew it before. I didn't need to see it, but I, I, the, the experience of it, it just, it just pierced me even deeper. You know, now's the time to be very clear about the depth of the evil that we are fighting, not only on our own behalf, but really on behalf of all of mankind. A mankind, by the way, that does not seem very grateful for the battle that we're in on their behalf, but we don't have the luxury of waiting for their gratitude, which I don't think will come until the times of Messiah when everything becomes clear. You know, we need to fight right now because that's what we need to do. And ultimately, that's the reason that I'm grateful I went, because as a nation, we need to understand the deepest why of, of what we're going through right now. And as I was reading and reflecting on the Torah portion of Vayechi, the last Torah portion of the book of Genesis, I found myself discovering deeper insights and deeper dimensions of the why behind all of this. So let's try to look, you know, inside to understand. So Yaakov, right, Jacob starts by calling for his sons to come around his bed before he leaves the world. First, he, of course, blesses Joseph and Manasseh and Ephraim, and that happens. But for argument's sake, I want to start here in chapter 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, and I will tell you what will happen. Uh, what will happen with you in the end of days. So Jacob calls his sons, and, and his intentions were to tell them what will happen to them, like he said, at the end of days. He wanted to reveal to them the secrets of what will happen in end times. And, uh, and what's the very next verse? The very next verse starts with Reuben. Reuven, you are my firstborn, my initial strength and my vigor. It's like he just skips over, he, he had someone to say, and he just sort of skips it and goes right to the blessings. He launches right in. And it, it's universally understood that at that moment, as Jacob wanted to reveal to his sons the secrets of the Messianic era, all of a sudden those secrets, they're just 
they dissipate. They disappear. They're hidden from him. He wanted to tell them what was in store, what to expect, but all of a sudden, it's just gone. And so ultimately, the sages teach that Jacob thought that the prophetic clarity about the end of days was removed to him, removed from him because perhaps one of his sons was undeserving, at least one of his sons. Um, perhaps there was an Ishmael or an Esau amongst them that would misuse that knowledge of those secrets. But at that very moment, we learn that his sons declared in unison, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the name of their father Israel. Jacob was Israel. Hear, O Israel, they're speaking to their father, the original declaration that came right here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And upon hearing his, son, his sons proclaim this ultimate truth together as one, Jacob is overcome with gratitude that all of his sons are indeed righteous. And he declared, Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuto Le'olam Ve'et. Blessed is the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. Now to this day, morning and night, when we proclaim the Shema, when we proclaim this transcendent truth of God's oneness, we say the same words that Jacob's sons assured him of their faith. Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then we follow that by whispering Jacob's response. Blessed is the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. And within Jacob's response, I felt in my heart, was the deeper why of what we are going through as a nation. The deeper why of, of why I found myself in Be'eri. So the, the murderous terror attacks on October 7th comes to teach us, I believe, I was gleaning from this, teach us that clearly the Holocaust did not happen merely to show us why it's so important the Jewish people have a Jewish state. That, that clearly six million Jews were not murdered merely to demonstrate how important it is that we have a refuge to retreat to when the inevitable genocidal urge of the nations comes and get for us and now we have a place to go. Right now we have a refuge. That's not why the Holocaust happened. Because if that was the reason, well, that has just been totally debunked because within the very Jewish state that was supposed to be the remedy, which would prevent future Holocausts, well, within that state, we have just endured horrors that were arguably, in some ways, worse than the Holocaust itself. We haven't returned to our ancient homeland and established a state merely to prevent a Holocaust. We didn't return home to fight against something, against dying in a genocide. That's not what it was all about. After 2,000 years, we have returned home to fight for something. And Jacob said it right there. We've returned home to establish the kingdom, the kingdom of Israel from which we will bless his name forever and ever. The kingdom of Hashem from which all of mankind will come to know the God of Israel in a way that's so intimate and so impossible for us to imagine, so profound that it will transform the world from a place of war and hatred to a place of love and peace. The contrast between the reality we're in right now and the further reality we're going into and the reality immediately afterwards, the redemption could not be a starker contrast between light and darkness and peace and war and love and hate. In some ways, that's what the entire scenario is being established for, for us to experience that contrast. You see, all of you know this, right? In the months leading up to October 7th and the massacre that we, we endured there, the nation of Israel was in a state of greater conflict than perhaps we've ever seen. I've never seen a greater conflict in the land in all my years here. And the crux of this, this battle that we found ourselves in within the nation was surrounding the Supreme Court and the system of justice within the state of Israel. You remember this. This is where we left off. We had a number of fellowships about this. You know, I won't go into the details, but in short, some of the country wanted to keep in place the unelected judges with veto power to overrule any legislation passed by the Knesset merely by saying it seemed unreasonable to them, while the majority of the country wanted to liberate themselves in the state of Israel from what they experienced was an authoritarian rule of unelected leftist tyrants. Now, as you see by my positioning of that, where I stood on it. I, I can't even present it in a, in a normative, objective way. But anyways, among the, the core challenges was with this whole thing 
because you know we have debates and debates. Jews love debating, and we're always running in circles about it. Was that Israel has no constitution? So what would the Supreme Court use uh, as a basis of legislation? What would be the the guide for the nation for our? What would represent our national values, our priorities, from which legislation would come? This conflict felt like it was a battle over the very heart of the country, and that heart was being violently ripped in two. And many in Hamas have said that viewing that from the side and seeing what was happening within Israel, they said, now is the time that is ripe for this attack, as they're fighting each other with such zealousness, not just on a practical strategic level, but also on a spiritual level. Anyway, so there I am in Be'eri, and I stood on the ashes, and on the rubble, and on the devastation, it became clear to me that this massacre, on at least on one dimension, was a wake-up call. That if we think that we've returned to the land to establish just another state, just another liberal, liberal democracy in the Middle East, then we will suffer the consequences of this godless reality. You know, measure for measure, that's how we will experience it. We see in, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15. But if you do not obey your uh, your God, Hashem, Hashem your God, to observe faithfully, all the commandments and laws which I enjoin upon you today, all these curses shall come upon you and take effect. And the curses are powerful. We've gone through them before. We, we know the Torah. We know that part of the book of Deuteronomy, the warnings of the curses, and what life will be like if we seek to live in the land divorced of Hashem's light and guidance and truth. And we read in, uh, in the book of, of Numbers, chapter 33. But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those whom you allow to remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall harass you in the land where you live. Moreover, it shall come to pass that I shall do to you as I thought to do to them. When we, when we entered the land of Israel in this most recent return, the ingathering of the exiles, um, you know, we, we were just out of the ashes of, of, of Auschwitz. You know, we, we experienced so much war. I, I try not to be judgmental, but we just wanted peace and harmony. And so we entered the land and, and we had these tremendous, miraculous victories. And I don't think we were prepared to be winners. We weren't prepared for victory. And because of misplaced mercy and, uh, and a misunderstanding of our enemies and most critically, a lack of adhering to the Torah and the instruction of Hashem, we invited our enemies to stay. Our enemies who immediately launched a genocidal war against us, known as the War of Independence. They, their goal was October 7th then. Their goal was has been October 7th from before the establishment of the State of Israel. The moment that the State of Israel was declared already a genocidal war against us. And I guess we just didn't have the strength, the faith, the clarity, the conviction to overcome our natural predisposition and our natural desire for peace and reconciliation, uh, we didn't have the, the strength to banish them from the land. And instead, we constructed fantasies of coexistence and illusions of peace and reconciliation, which we've been paying the price for in this long, protracted war of terror that they've declared upon us since the very beginning. And on October 7th, those illusions, those idols, were literally smashed over our own heads. J Jeremy showed you in, in his video, the villages in the south used to be, I mean, beautiful homes, really beautiful homes. I don't mean like, you know, ostentatious and massive and mansions, just really beautiful. And, and just serene, you could, the, the contrast of the serenity and the beauty that you see to what the the horrific terrors that that those homes had become, you could see them at the same time, and you know. So Jeremy showed you in the video the village in the south. They used to be these bastions of leftist secular utopian delusions, and now from all I've heard and from all I've seen with my own eyes, from everybody that I've spoken to, hundreds of people, the people of Barry and of the south have recognized, by and large. I mean, I, I've actually noticed, you know. A lot of it has to do with how old they are. If they're above the age of 70, by and large, they're still sort of holding on to their delusions because it's really hard. 
at that stage to rewire and reconsider and to rethink. But really, the people of Be'eri um, have recognized the fatal errors of their delusions. The, our, gu gu our guide himself, you know, he told us that, that he used to be on the left. And he had already started, you know, before October 7th, moving over as much of the younger generation is. But this was a huge eye-opener for him. And, you know, there's, there's an outcry among the nation to stop bringing in Arab labor to our communities. Um, there's, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, even in the nearby village of Ibea Nacha, where my little daughter Dvash goes to kindergarten, I was really nervous about her going there because they're building up that community in such a beautiful way. But there's so much Arab labor. And I just was so torn and so... The, the very thought of her going there with all of these Arabs with pickaxes around all it takes is for one of the hundreds of them to go jihad and run for the kindergarten, which is their first target, obviously. It was just horrific, and I felt such a relief since the war has happened now that Dvash has started that she that there are no Arabs there that are, are threatening her. Um, I'm By the way, I'm past the whole thing about worrying how I'm going to be perceived if it's racist or xenophobic or whatever phobic or whatever thing it is i don't care you know obviously also it's it's clear that this is not an issue of race you know an arab that converts to christianity an arab that converts to judaism can pray in my synagogue can his son can marry my daughter it's not an issue of race it's an issue of really horrific spiritual bad ideas Anyway, so there's this move to stop them from the Arab labor from going into the communities, you know, but there's a price to stopping this addiction that we have to Arab labor. Building projects have been frozen and they lie stagnant and people are losing money and homes are lying unbuilt. And many of the leadership in Israel, many of the, uh, you know, the members of the government are saying that, well, what can you do? We got to bring them in. They will. They said, we will be more careful. We'll screen better for terrorists. But we have no choice but to, to let them back in, regardless of the clear, imminent, obvious threat that they pose to our lives and the lives of our children. I mean, the, all of the polls are showing where they, what they believe and what they stand for. You know, the, all of these divisions that we have in our mind, dividing them from each other, it's just an illusion. You know, it's clear that regardless of what the government promises, the nation itself is against it. Uh, there's all these different ideas coming out about different, you know, there's Filipino workers and Romanian workers and Hungarian workers that really want jobs that would love to come to Israel and they won't go on jihads and try to kill us. Also training more and more Jews to become builders. Jews want to become builders. They're trying to become builders, but they just can't compete with the Arabs. They don't have to pay the taxes. They don't have to go to reserve duty. They have, you know, it's impossible to compete. It's a crazy, you know, incentive structure the state of Israel has set up. But anyways, you know, Jeremy and I have been approached to help in the campaign to end this Arab labor once and for all. I was actually about, I really thought I was going to get arrested um, because on just less than a week after uh, October 7th, I, I took my son Shiloh to his, uh, his little kindergarten in Efrat. And as I was driving up, I saw uh, three Arab workers working the machine and the the trash system right outside his gun and now they know where his kindergarten is they have that information they have that intelligence you know it, it, it was it's been made crystal clear that without the real-time detailed intelligence provided but to hamas by these trusted arab laborers without that information that they provided to hamas october 7th i don't know if it would have been successful it definitely would not have been so horrifically lethal and so you know here's a video that jeremy made appealing for only jewish labor shalom the good people of efrat this is jeremy gimpel i'm just driving through your beautiful issue right now i went to high school here my family lives here i absolutely love it here and i just bless you with ahavat israel because there are jewish electricians and jewish plumbers and jewish workers and I know that there's a big brouhaha now about letting in Po'alim that will do the blue collar work because, you know, they're cheaper. They don't have to pay taxes. They can just take the money and they just go back to their villages. And then with that money, they build more houses on Eretz Israel, 
and um, and we continue to feed the cancer and I myself in my farm 90% of my farm was built by Arab labor so but since October 7th I took it upon myself never again I was just in the south and heard the stories of what the Arab Po'alim who worked in Be'eri did to the people of Be'eri and polls are coming out more than 80% of them support October 7th have Avat Israel not only for your children but for the Jewish workers that can easily be hired here and so why is it Avat Israel because you might have to pay an extra 10 or 20 percent but are the lives of your children not worth that and so there will be midah keneged midah that's just the way the world works so may we be blessed with Avat Israel and be blessed with Avat Israel and so Shabbat Shalom, my friends. Choose life. So that's, you know, one of the videos and people are putting more and more and more of these videos out. And so, you know, I, I was I started telling you the story that I saw these Arabs right outside and I sent a voice memo to the mayor in a moment of uh, anger. I was angry. And I I said to him, Please explain to me why these Arabs now know where my son goes to kindergarten. Uh, should I tell them, should I send Hamas uh, pictures and videos of where your children go to kindergarten or your grandchildren go to kindergarten? Should Is, is that what I, because that's what you've just done by allowing less than a week later, it's already happened. You know, people, if, I don't know if you remember, it wasn't clear what was going on then. It's still not clear what's going on, but people felt so vulnerable. And then to bring them into the communities, it's like, Jews can do it. We can do it. We can work the little machine. We can do it. We can do it. Anyways, so the, the government forces that say, yes, we can bring them back. But, you know, Israeli Arabs, of course, only Israeli Arabs, they say. Citizens. Because although the polls say that they are overwhelmingly support Hamas as well, for some reason, we believe that Israeli Arab citizens are so fundamentally different because they are citizens. Just two days ago, only 15 minutes from the farm, a terrorist viciously attacked two soldiers. Uh, one, um, a young woman uh, who was in critical condition and uh, stabbed, stabbed all over her body, her neck, her chest, all over her body, and one in moderate condition. And, um, and here's a picture of the Teudat Zahut the citizenship ID of the Arab who committed the attack. That picture says it all. That bloody identification papers, because yes, that is an Israeli ID. He was a citizen. And not only a citizen, but he was on the construction crew that was assigned to Hadassah Hospital, where my beautiful baby boy Mordechai Shimshon was born just a couple weeks ago. Hadassah Hospital. Are we nuts? Thorns in our sides. That's what the Torah tells us. If we do not expel them from the land, then what Hashem wanted to do to them will be done to us. Hashem told us what to do, but we're a stiff-necked people, and we didn't listen, and we are paying the price. And if we don't establish the constitution of the state of Israel as the Torah, then we will continue to pay the price. And I know it's so scary to say that. Establish the constitution as the Torah, you know, people picture Iran and the mullahs, and, but there's a little difference here. And that is that we are not Islam. We are not the mullahs. We are the nation of Israel, a kind, compassionate, loving nation that's bringing light to the world. And the Torah is to be our constitution. The problem is that before October 7th, we were not in a place as a nation where we were ready to even hear this idea, to hear this truth. But as we've discussed in this fellowship, the sages of Israel teach us that wars open our hearts, you know, that wars have the power to wake up our souls and bring us to a greater awakening than perhaps would have ever been possible without the war. For, the, for you know, the, the Torah is not something to be coerced upon the nation of Israel. The Torah is to be embraced. The Torah is to be loved and cleaved to with all of our heart and all of our might and all of our soul. For as we declared, when one unified voice at Mount Sinai, what did we say together? We will do, and then we will understand. We don't even need to understand. So great is our faith and our trust in Hashem. That is exactly the way the nation of Israel must accept the Torah now. Faithfully, 
and voluntarily. As a nation, we are to seek out and embrace the Torah as our guide and our light in establishing the kingdom of Israel. And that's what I see happening to the nation right now. There's an awakening going on. And I'm not just saying this. It's true. It's really happening. When you're here, you feel it. Notice that when, you know, when Yaakov blessed the brothers around his bed, he didn't bless them in private one at a time, and each one came in and each one left. He blessed them together in front of each other. He blessed them as one unit to convey to all of them that, that each and every single one of them has gifts and talents that contribute to the beauty and the perfection of the nation as a whole. That we're not to resent the differences between us. We're to embrace them and love them. And so each of the tribes was able to hear and see the strengths and the talents that each of the other tribes brought to the greater whole of the nation of Israel. And they heard it directly from the mouth of their father. And that is perhaps the greatest spiritual shift that I see happening in the nation now. There is a unity that is so deep that it's impossible to explain, a unity that transcends the cliched term unity. You know, it's this, it's this unity that is penetrating the hearts of the nation in a way that only Hashem can do such a thing. I want to show you a couple of videos that I think hint at this unity that allude to the consciousness that is so very difficult to describe and put into words. We kept asking the soldiers, what could we outside of Israel do for you? My name is Baruch Margolis, and I'm a soldier right now in the paratroopers. And we kept hearing these same answers. Pray for us, do a mitzvah for us. Normally I'm home with my family observing Shabbat, but unfortunately, when at war, we aren't able to do this together. I know how important this mitzvah protecting my country is, but wish that I was could be back home keeping Shabbat with my family. It would mean a lot to me, my family out there, who doesn't usually observe Shabbat, can help us by trying to keep one Shabbat with their family on my behalf. So I thought, what if we pair up soldiers who normally keep Shabbos fully but can't with people who normally don't keep Shabbos but can? Hi. It, it's David. And Sasha. And um, we just finished Havdalah. We uh, kept Shabbat for you this week, uh, which we don't normally do. So um, we are very happy to do it. And uh, we had a great Shabbat dinner. We had friends, family here. Um, We're just so happy that we got to do this for you because as David said, we don't normally keep Shabbat, but it was so much more special knowing that we were doing it on your behalf. So we hope that you're being safe and that this brings you comfort and warmth in the same way that Shabbat would have if you were able to keep it. So thank you for everything that you're doing for us and for Israel. And um, we're sending you all of the positive vibes and energy that we possibly can. And thank you, Baruch. Thank you so much. I was so moved by that, I had to send it back to Baruch. Wow, that's so amazing. That video was so emotional, made me feel great. Uh, had Shabbat Gaza, and you know we weren't able to do any davening or Shabbos meals or anything like that. So really, really appreciate it. I'm like I got so emotional watching your video, and made me feel really good. And I hope you got a lot as much out of it as I got out of it. Thanks so much. Wasn't that beautiful? I mean, there are, you know, just 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 think about that. There's this a deep intuitive recognition that we are one body you know that we're one people and where one of us ends the other begins and that ending and beginning is not as clear a distinction as we think meaning we're all really one and uh you know these are not people like you heard that are religious you know you heard them say that they don't keep shabbat but this isn't about religious practice or ritual this this unity is it's greater than that this unity is about the deepest truth of our very essence as a people and last week we learned about uh the death of the of a young man named Ephraim Yachma uh Jeremy uh, spoke about him I, I'm gonna let Jeremy talk about him in greater depth but he was Jeremy's neighbor from Neve Daniel I wasn't able to go to the funeral but um I've heard legends about the the humility and the holiness and the greatness of this exceptional young Sadiq and I'm excited for all of you to hear some of those stories when Jeremy shares them and, and how he wants to share them. But here's a video of one of his friends that had 24 hours to leave Gaza. And this is the initiative that he, he took upon himself on behalf of his whole unit to send I'm here with Hoshen in our Hamal and Efrat. And a few days ago, Hoshen came to us and requested two things. Why did he request two things? Because he know what the ultimate protector of our soldiers, of our people, is Torah. Torah Magal Matzah. And he said he needs a Mishavruah and a Rambam for his Chevra in his unit. Tell us, what's going on? So, my friend 
died two days ago in uh, Gaza. And uh, one of the most strong thing, uh, things about him that he learned a few of me every day. So he uh, finished the uh, Kiddush in, uh, inside Gaza. And uh, after the Leviah yesterday, I said to my, to my friends in our unit, we must to, to learn every day. It's so important. So I, I asked uh, the Mishnabur and the uh, Rambam, and I uh, committed to, to learn Rambam and the Mishnabur every day. Amazing. Hashem should protect you, Hashem should protect all of our Chayalim, everyone should come home. Thank you so much. I know there are probably a lot of words that were in there that I realize you may not have understood what exactly he was talking about, but you understood the the message there, that they are carrying forth the torch of his Torah learning and running with that, even though they were not all religious or pious or whatever. They said that this he's going to continue living through us. He, he recognized that we're interconnected on such a deep level that by continuing this learning, he's literally doing, he's allowing Ephraim to literally do it through him, all of them, all of those soldiers. He still lives within them. That's the mystical blessing that uh, we, we ble- people who, who pass away, it actually says it on the Matseva, on the, on the tombstone. It says, that their soul, I, I can't translate it. I don't know how to translate it. But that their soul should be forever intertwined within the bundle or the chain of life. That's Tabitha close enough. It's hard to explain. And even if I translated it right, go try to understand it fully. You know, but, but it's actually, it's, you know, we've been saying these words for thousands of years, but now more than ever in my lifetime, the nation is internalizing this this truth that there is a bundle of souls that we are part of one and we're infusing this knowledge of our oneness in into our very essence and that is happening from above that's something that we can't do that's why you know the sages say that the torah says that in the end of days there will be a circumcision of the heart doesn't say of the mind because the mind is sort of under our control the heart that is something that god is doing that's something that's really out of our control and so, so despite everything that's happening, it's this transcendent unity that is emerging from within the nation of Israel that's giving me hope. And that's why the why when the secrets of the end of days um, fled from Jacob, he lost that that knowledge and that prophetic insight. It was the unity of his sons, wholeheartedly expressing their faith in the oneness of Hashem, that gave Jacob hope. Because, you know, the unity of the nation of Israel together. You know, our love for each other, not despite our differences, but because of them. In some ways, it's really, I I hear myself saying these words, and I've said them about this fellowship. And in some ways, I feel like what's happening in this fellowship and what's happening in the nation of Israel, it's sort of happening on two parallel tracks. And there's this, this transcendent love that is inexplicable that brings us all together here right now in this fellowship. And it's also happening in Israel at the time. Something is going on on these different fronts where the same love and the same unity is being aroused. And that is that is what will bring about the arrival of Mashiach. Because the unity of Israel is what will catalyze the unity of all of mankind. And the love of the nation of Israel for each other is what will catalyze the love of all of mankind for each other. I wanted to talk to you now about Joseph and about that whole chapter of things, but I think my heart is telling me We'll talk about it. We will. Let's talk about it next week. Let's talk about it next week for right now or the week after that. Soon, we'll talk about it. But right now, um, I think we need to to, uh, to bless each other, to pray together that Hashem circumcises our hearts and sparks the love for each other that is the most clear and direct consequence and blossoming of our love for him and that blossoming love that is happening for each other and for him within our hearts that will bring about the blossoming of the the son of david of the mashiach that we've been praying for that will bring the temple and the light and the love that the world so badly needs and i know that we here were a part of it and it's really up to us to decide how great a part of it we want to be. 
And what we all we need to do to make it happen is just keep kindling that flame in our own hearts, that flame of longing and of yearning. Not about us and our story and how we fit into this. This isn't about us. This is about bringing the revelation of Hashem into a world that is such a void and is such a lacking right now, such darkness and that feeling of emptiness. And we want God to be powerfully revealed to all of mankind. And that light and that love will bring the peace and the healing that we've been praying for for so long. Hashem, please let it be soon in our days. Now it's my greatest joy to bless all of you. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha Ya'er Adonai panav elecha v'yichinecha Yisa Adonai panav elecha v'yisem lecha shalom May Hashem bless and protect you. May Hashem shine His light and His countenance upon you. May He give you peace. Amen. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the Land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.